Section 10 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 22, Palmerston, Part 1. The death of Sir Robert Peel had left Lord Palmerston the most prominent, if not actually the most influential, among the statesmen of England. Palmerston's was a strenuous, self-asserting character. He loved whenever he had an opportunity to make a stroke, as he frequently put it himself, off his own bat. He had given himself up to the study of foreign affairs as no minister of his time had done. He had a peculiar capacity for understanding foreign politics and people, as well as foreign languages, and he had come somewhat to pique himself upon his knowledge. As Bacon said that he had taken all learning for his province, Palmerston seemed to have made up his mind that he had taken all European affairs for his province. His sympathies were markedly liberal. As opinions went then, they might have been considered among statesmen almost revolutionary, for the conservative of our day is to the full as liberal as the average liberal of 1848 and 1850. In all the popular movements going on throughout the continent, Palmerston's sympathies were generally with the peoples and against the government, while he had, on the other hand, a very strong contempt which he took no pains to conceal, even for the very best class of the continental demagogue. It was not, however, in his sympathies that Palmerston differed from most of his colleagues. He was not more liberal, even in his views of foreign affairs, than Lord John Russell. He was probably not so consistently and on principle a supporter of free and popular institutions. But Lord Palmerston's energetic, heedless temperament, his exuberant animal spirits, and his profound confidence in himself and his opinions made him much more liberal and spontaneous in his expressions of sympathy than a man of Russell's colder nature could well have been. Palmerston seized a conclusion at once, and hardly ever departed from it. He never seemed to care who knew what he thought on any subject. He had a contempt for men of more deliberate temper, and often spoke and wrote as if he thought a man slow in forming an opinion must needs be a dull man, not to say a fool. All opinions not his own he held in good-humoured scorn. In some of his letters we find him writing of men of the most undoubted genius and wisdom, whose views have since stood all the test of time and trial, as if they were mere blockheads, for whom no practical man could feel the slightest respect. It would be almost superfluous to say, in describing a man of such a nature, that Lord Palmerston sometimes fancied he saw great wisdom and force of character in men for whom neither then nor since did the world in general show much regard. As with a man, so with a cause, Lord Palmerston was to all appearance capricious in his sympathies. Calmer and more earnest minds were sometimes offended at what seemed a lack of deep-seated principle in his mind and his policy, even when it happened that he and they were in accord as to the course that ought to be pursued. His levity often shocked them. His blunt, brusque ways of speaking and writing sometimes gave downright offence. In his later years, Lord Palmerston's manner in Parliament and out of it had greatly mellowed and softened and grown more genial. He retained all the good spirits and the ready, easy, marvellously telling humour, but he had grown more considerate of the feelings of opponents in debate, and he allowed his genuine kindness of heart a freer influence upon his mode of speech. 
he had grown to prefer on the whole his friend or even his honourable opponent to his joke. They who only remember Palmerston in his very later years in the House of Commons, and who can only recall to memory that bright racy humour which never offended, will perhaps find it hard to understand how many enemies he made for himself at an earlier period by the levity and flippancy of his manner. Many grave statesmen thought that the levity and flippancy were far less dangerous even when employed in irritating his adversaries in the House of Commons than when exercised in badgering foreign ministers and their governments and sovereigns. Lord Palmerston was unsparing in his lectures to foreign states. He was always admonishing them that they ought to lose no time in at once adopting the principles of government which prevailed in England. He not uncommonly put his admonitions in the tone of one who meant to say, If you don't take my advice, you will be ruined, and your ruin will serve you right for being such fools. While therefore he was a conservative in home politics, and never even professed the slightest personal interest in any projects of political reform in England, he got the credit all over the continent of being a supporter, promoter, and patron of all manner of revolutionary movements and a disturber of the relations between subjects and their sovereigns. Lord Palmerston was not inconsistent in thus being a conservative at home and something like a revolutionary abroad. He was quite satisfied with the state of things in England. He was convinced that when a people had got a well-limited suffrage and a respectable House of Commons elected by open vote, a House of Lords and a constitutional sovereign, they had got all that in a political sense man has to hope for. He was not a far-seeing man, nor a man who much troubled himself about what a certain class of writers and thinkers are fond of calling problems of life. It did not occur to him to think that as a matter of absolute necessity the very reforms we enjoy in one day are only putting us into a mental condition to aspire after and see the occasion for further reforms as the days go on but he clearly saw that most continental countries were governed on a system which was not only worn out and decaying, but which was the source of great practical and personal evils to their inhabitants. He desired, therefore, for every country a political system like that of Great Britain, and neither for Great Britain nor for any other country did he desire anything more. He was accordingly looked upon by continental ministers as a patron of revolution and by English radicals as the steady enemy of political reform. Both were right from their own point of view. The familiar saying among continental conservatives was expressed in the well-known German lines which affirm that if the devil had a son, he must be surely Palmerston. On the other hand, the English radical party regarded him as the most formidable enemy they had. Mr. Cobden deliberately declared him to be the worst minister that had ever governed England. At a later period, when Lord Palmerston invited Cobden to take office under him, Cobden referred to what he had said of Palmerston and gave this as a reason to show the impossibility of his serving such a chief. The good-natured statesman only smiled and observed that another public man who had just joined his administration had often said things as hard of him in other days, Yes, answered Cobden quietly, but I meant what I said. Palmerston, therefore, had many enemies among European statesmen. 
it is now certain that the queen frequently winced under the expressions of ill-feeling which were brought to her ears as affecting england and as she supposed herself and which she believed to have been drawn on her by the inconsiderate and impulsive conduct of palmerston the prince consort on whose advice the queen very naturally relied was a man of singularly calm and earnest nature he liked to form his opinions deliberately and slowly and disliked expressing any opinion until his mind was well made up lord palmerston when secretary for foreign affairs was much in the habit of writing and answering dispatches on the spur of the moment and without consulting either the queen or his colleagues palmerston complained of the long delays which took place on several occasions when in matters of urgent importance he waited to submit dispatches to the queen before sending them off he was of opinion that during the memorable controversy on the spanish marriages the interests of england were once in danger of being compromised by the delay thus forced upon him he contended too that where the general policy of a state was clearly marked out and well known it would have been idle to insist that a foreign secretary capable of performing the duties of his office should wait to submit for the inspection and approval of the sovereign and his colleagues every scrap of paper he wrote on before it was allowed to leave england if such precautions were needful lord palmerston contended it could only be because the person holding the office of foreign secretary was unfit for his post and he ought therefore to be dismissed and some better qualified man put in his place of course there is some obvious justice in this view of the case it would perhaps have been unreasonable to expect that at a time when the business of the foreign office had suddenly swelled to unprecedented magnitude the same rules and formalities could be kept up which had suited slower and less busy days but the complaint made by the queen was not that palmerston failed to consult her on every detail and to submit every line relating to the organization of the foreign office for her approval before he sent it off the complaint was clear and full of matter for very grave consideration the queen complained that on matters concerning the actual policy of the state palmerston was in the habit of acting on his own independent judgment and authority and that she found herself more than once thus pledged to a course of policy which she had not had an opportunity of considering and would not have approved if she had had such an opportunity and that she hardly ever found any question absolutely intact and uncompromised when it was submitted to her judgment the complaint was justified in many cases lord palmerston frequently acted in a manner which almost made it seem as if he were purposely ignoring the authority of the sovereign in part this came from the natural impatience of a quick man confident in his own knowledge of a subject and chafing at any delay which he thought unnecessary and merely formal but it is not easy to avoid a suspicion that lord palmerston's rapidity of action sometimes had a different explanation two impressions seem to have had a place deeply down in the mind of the foreign secretary he appears to have felt sure that roughly speaking the sympathies of the english people were with the continental movements against the sovereigns and that the sympathies of the english court were with the sovereigns against the popular movements in the first belief he was undoubtedly right in the second he was probably right 
it is not likely that a man of Prince Albert's peculiar turn of mind could have admitted much sympathy with revolution against constituted authority of any kind. Even his liberalism, undoubtedly a deep and genuine conviction, did not lead him to make much allowance for any disturbing impulses. His orderly intellectual nature, with little of fire or passion in it, was prone to estimate everything by the manner in which it stood the test of logical argument. He could understand arguing against a bad system better than he could understand taking the risk of making things worse by resisting it. Some of the published memoranda or other writings of Prince Albert are full of a curious interest as showing the way in which a calm, intellectual, and earnest man could approach some of the burning questions of the day with the belief, apparently, that the great antagonisms of systems and of opposing national forces could be argued into moderation and persuaded into compromise. In Prince Albert there were two tendencies counteracting each other. His natural sympathies were manifestly with the authority of thrones. His education taught him that thrones can only exist by virtue of their occupants recognizing the fact that they do not exist of their own authority, and taking care that they do not become unsuited to the time. The influence of Prince Albert would therefore be something very different from the impulses and desires of Lord Palmerston. It is hardly to be doubted that Palmerston sometimes acted upon this conviction. He thought he understood better than others not only the tendencies of events in foreign politics, but also the tendencies of English public opinion with regard to them. He well knew that so long as he had public opinion with him, no influence could long prevail against him. His knowledge of English public opinion was something like an instinct. It could always be trusted. It had indeed no far reach. Lord Palmerston never could be relied upon for a judgment as to the possible changes of a generation or even a few years, but he was an almost infallible guide as to what a majority of the English people were likely to say if asked at the particular moment when any question was under dispute. Palmerston never really guided, but always followed, the English public, even in foreign affairs. He was, it seems, almost needless to say, an incomparably better judge of the direction English sentiment was likely to take than the most acute foreigner put in such a place as Prince Albert's could possibly hope to be. It may be assumed, then, that some at least of Lord Palmerston's actions were dictated by the conviction that he had the general force of that sentiment to sustain him in case his mode of conducting the business of the Foreign Office should ever be called into account. A time came when it was called into account. The Queen and the Prince had long chafed under Lord Palmerston's cavalier way of doing business. So far back as 1849, Her Majesty had felt obliged to draw the attention of the Foreign Secretary to the fact that his office was constitutionally under the control of the Prime Minister, and that the dispatches to be submitted for her approval should therefore pass through the hands of Lord John Russell. Lord John Russell approved of this arrangement, only suggesting, and the suggestion is of some moment in considering the defense of his conduct afterwards made by Lord Palmerston, that every facility should be given for the transaction of business by the Queen's attending to the draft dispatches as soon as possible after their arrival. The Queen accepted the suggestion good-humouredly, 
only pleading that she should not be pressed for an answer within a few minutes as is done now sometimes. One can see tolerably well what a part of the difficulty was, even from these slight hints. Lord Palmerston was rapid in forming his judgments as in all his proceedings, and when once he had made up his mind was impatient of any delay which seemed to him superfluous. Prince Albert was slow, deliberate, reflective, and methodical. Lord Palmerston was always sure he was right in every judgment he formed, even if it were adopted on the spur of the moment. Prince Albert loved reconsideration and was open to new argument and late conviction. However, the difficulty was got over in 1849. Lord Palmerston agreed to every suggestion, and for the time all seemed likely to go smoothly. It was only for the time. The Queen soon believed she had reason to complain that the new arrangement was not carried out. Things were going on, she thought, in just the old way. Lord Palmerston dealt as before with foreign courts according to what seemed best to him at the moment, and his sovereign and his colleagues often only knew of some important dispatch or instruction when the thing was done and could not be conveniently or becomingly undone. The prince, at Her Majesty's request, wrote to Lord John Russell complaining strongly of the conduct of Lord Palmerston. The letter declared that Lord Palmerston had failed in his duty toward her, and not from oversight or negligence, but upon principle, and with astonishing pertinacity against every effort of the Queen. Besides which, Lord Palmerston does not scruple to let it appear in public as if the Sovereign's negligence in attending to the papers sent to her caused delay and annoyance. Even before this, it seems that the Queen had drawn up a memorandum to lay down in clear and severe language the exact rules by which the Foreign Secretary must be bound in his dealings with her. The memorandum was not used at that time, as it was thought that the remonstrances of the Sovereign and the Prime Minister alike could hardly fail to have some effect on the Foreign Secretary. This time, however, the Queen appears to have felt that she could no longer refrain, and accordingly the following important memorandum was addressed by Her Majesty to the Prime Minister. It is well worth quoting in full, partly because it became a subject of much interest and controversy afterwards, and partly because of the tone of peculiar sternness, rare indeed from a sovereign to a minister in our times, in which its instructions are conveyed. Osborne, August 12, 1850. With reference to the conversation about Lord Palmerston which the Queen had with Lord John Russell the other day, in Lord Palmerston's disavowal that he ever intended any disrespect to her, by the various neglects of which she has had so long and so often to complain, she thinks it right, in order to prevent any mistake for the future, to explain what it is she expects from the Foreign Secretary. She requires, first, that he will distinctly state what he proposes to do in a given case, in order that the Queen may know as distinctly to what she has given her royal sanction. Second, having once given her sanction to a measure, that it be not arbitrarily altered or modified by the minister, such an act she must consider as failure in sincerity toward the crown, and justly to be visited by the exercise of her constitutional right of dismissing that minister. She expects to be kept informed of what passes between him and the foreign ministers before important decisions are taken based upon that intercourse, to receive the foreign dispatches in good time, 
and to have the drafts for her approval sent to her in sufficient time to make herself acquainted with their contents before they must be sent off. The Queen thinks it best that Lord John Russell should show this letter to Lord Palmerston. The tone of the memorandum was severe, but there was nothing unreasonable in its stipulations. On the contrary, it simply prescribed what everyone might have supposed to be the elementary conditions on which the duties of a sovereign and a foreign minister can alone be satisfactorily carried on. Custom as well as obvious convenience demanded such conditions. The Duke of Wellington declared that when he was Prime Minister no dispatch left the Foreign Office without his seeing it. No sovereign, one would think, would consent to the responsibility of rule on any other terms. We have perhaps got into the habit of thinking, or at least of saying, that the sovereign of a constitutional country only rules through the ministers. But it would be a great mistake to suppose that the sovereign has no constitutional functions whatever provided by our system of government, and that the sole duty of a monarch is to make a figure in certain state pageantry. It has sometimes been said that the sovereign in a country like England is only the signet ring of the nation. If this were true, it might be asked, with unanswerable force, why a veritable signet ring, costing a few pounds and never requiring to be renewed, would not serve all purposes quite as well and save expense. But the position of the sovereign is not one of meaningless inactivity. The sovereign has a very distinct and practical office to fulfill in a constitutional country. The monarch in England is the chief magistrate of the state, specially raised above party and passion and change, in order to be able to look with a clearer eye to all that concerns the interests of the nation. Our constitutional system grows and develops itself year after year as our requirements and conditions change, and the position of the sovereign, like everything else, has undergone some modification. It is settled now beyond dispute that the sovereign is not to dismiss ministers or a minister simply from personal inclination or conviction, as until a very recent day it was the right and the habit of English monarchs to do. The sovereign now retains in virtue of usage, having almost the force of constitutional law, the ministers of whom the House of Commons approves. But the Crown still has the right, in case of extreme need, of dismissing any minister who actually fails to do his duty. The sovereign is always supposed to understand the business of the state, to consider its affairs, and to offer an opinion and enforce it by argument on any question submitted by the ministers. When the ministers find that they cannot allow their judgment to bend to that of the sovereign, then indeed the sovereign gives way or the ministers resign. In all ordinary cases the sovereign gives way, but it was never intended by the English Constitution that the ministers in the country were not to have the benefit of the advice and judgment of a magistrate who was purposely placed above all the excitements and temptations of party, its triumphs and its reverses, and who is assumed, therefore, to have no other motive than the good of the state in offering an advice. The sovereign would grossly fail in public duty and would be practically disappointing the confidence of the nation, who consented to act simply as the puppet of the minister, and to sign mechanically and without question every document he laid on the table. In the principles which she laid down, therefore, the Queen was strictly right. But the memorandum was none the less a severe and a galling rebuke for the Foreign Secretary. We can imagine with what emotions Lord Palmerston must have received it. He was a proud, self-confident man, and it came on him just in the moment of his greatest triumph. 
Never before, never since, did Lord Palmerston win so signal and so splendid a victory as that which he had extorted by the sheer force of his eloquence and his genius from a reluctant House of Commons in the Don Pacifico debate. Never probably in our parliamentary history did a man of years so advanced accomplish such a feat of eloquence, argument, and persuasion as he had achieved. He stood up before the world, the foremost English statesman of the day. It is easy to imagine how deeply he must have felt the rebuke conveyed in the memorandum of the Queen. We know as a matter of fact, from what he himself afterwards said, that he did feel it bitterly. But he kept down his feelings. Whether he was right or wrong in the matter of dispute, he undoubtedly showed admirable self-control and good temper in his manner of receiving the reprimand. He wrote a friendly and good-humoured letter to Lord John Russell, saying, I have taken a copy of this memorandum of the Queen, and will not fail to attend to the directions which it contains. The letter then gave a few lines of explanation about the manner in which delays had arisen in the sending of dispatches to the Queen, but promised to return to the old practice, and expressing a hope that if the return acquired an additional clerk or two, the Treasury would be liberal in allowing him that assistance. Nothing could be more easy and pleasant. It might have seemed the ease of absolute carelessness, but it was nothing of the kind. Lord Palmerston had acted deliberately and with a purpose. He afterwards explained why he had not answered the rebuke by resigning his office. The paper, he said, was written in anger by a lady as well as by a sovereign, and the difference between a lady and a man could not be forgotten, even in the case of the occupant of the throne. He had no reason to suppose that this memorandum would ever be seen by or be known to anybody but the Queen, John Russell, and myself. Again, I had lately been the object of violent political attack, and had gained a great and signal victory in the House of Commons and in public opinion. To have resigned then would have been to have given the fruits of victory to antagonists whom I had defeated, and to have abandoned my political supporters at the very moment when by their means I had triumphed. But beyond all that, Lord Palmerston said that by suddenly resigning, I should have been bringing for decision at the bar of public opinion a personal quarrel between myself and my sovereign, a step which no subject ought to take, if he can possibly avoid it, for the result of such a course must be either fatal to him or injurious to the country. If he should prove to be in the wrong, he would be irretrievably condemned. If the sovereign should be proved to be in the wrong, the monarchy would suffer. It is impossible not to feel a high respect for the manner in which, having come to this determination, Lord Palmerston at once acted upon it. As he had resolved not to resent the rebuke, he would not allow any gleam of feeling to creep into his letter which should show that he felt any resentment. Few men could have avoided the temptation to throw into a reply on such an occasion something of the tone of the injured, the unappreciated, the martyr, the wronged one who endures much and will not complain. Lord Palmerston felt instinctively the bad taste and unwisdom of such a style of reply, he took his rebuke in the most perfect good humour. His letter must have surprised Lord John Russell. Macaulay observes that Warren Hastings, confident that he knew best and was acting rightly, endured the rebukes of the East India Company with a patience which was sometimes mistaken for the patience of stupidity. 
it is not unlikely that when the Prime Minister received Lord Palmerston's reply, he may have mistaken its patience for the patience of downright levity and indifference. Lord Palmerston went a step farther in the way of conciliation. He asked for an interview with Prince Albert, and he explained to the Prince in the most emphatic and indignant terms that the accusation against him of being purposely wanting in respect to the Sovereign was absolutely unfounded. Had it been deserved, he ought to be no longer tolerated in society. But he does not seem in the course of the interview to have done much more than argue the point as to the propriety and convenience of the system he had lately been adopting in the business of the Foreign Office. So, for the hour, the matter dropped. Other events interfered. There were many important questions of domestic policy to be attended to, and for some time, Lord Palmerston's policy and his way of conducting the business of the Foreign Office did not invite any particular attention. But the old question was destined to come up again in more serious form than before. End of section 10